welcome to our Friday Five Live podcast hosted by Meg Foster. Meg has spent 20 years in higher education focused on student success initiatives and working in areas such as orientation, faculty development, online learning, student leadership, and first-year initiatives. Thanks everybody who has joined us on um, what is a beautiful Friday um, in Virginia. And um, in case you're, we run into any issues, you are live from my mobile office, AKA the Swagger Wagon, um, off of Interstate 95 in, in Fredericksburg. So Chris, this is our first one we've ever taken on the road like this. So um, I appreciate you um, being along with us uh, literally for the ride. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. Um, and I just want to remind folks, as Melissa said, if you do have questions, you know, always I provide a, some questions to guide our conversation, but we're really eager to hear from you all. So don't hesitate to put your questions in the chat. Uh, let us know where you're listening from. Um, and I'll leave that um, into our conversation today. And um, Chris has been kind enough uh, to join us. Melissa, I don't know if you want to advance our slides for us um, from the University of Virginia. And um, we've got a bunch of resources listed here um, as well. All of those are hyperlinks to um, some prior content, um, as well as Chris's research um, on belonging so that he's participated in. Um, so I wanted to make sure we had those, those uh, links available to everyone. If we can go to the next slide. So um, Chris joining us, as I mentioned, from the University of Virginia, um, where he's a faculty faculty member um, conducting research um, on um, inter educational interventions um, grounded in these ideas of social, social um, personal psychology, uh, motivation, um, which I feel like, Chris, we're going to have to have you back on to talk about that, because that is another hot topic I'm talking to a lot of faculty about, and human development. Um, and I came across Chris, as I was mentioning um, earlier, through um, an article in UVA Alumni Magazine um, about uh, research that he's participated in with a team um, that was published over the summer around this concept of belonging. So Chris, thanks so much for spending some of your Friday with us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me and so I'm looking forward to the conversation. Melissa, do you mind advancing to our next slide? All right. So just to kick us off, um, this and, and I mentioned this uh, before we hit the record button, that this belonging has come up repeatedly this year in our podcasting series with um, a variety of, of folks working in higher education um, with all different kinds of um, students, be they uh, traditionally aged, adult learners, student parents, um, you know, this, this concept kind of keeps coming up. So could you kick us off by kind of sharing with us how you defining um, belonging um, for college students? And, and also within that capacity of their experience in a university or college community. Yeah, sure. Uh, I can start with something maybe a little more academic and then, um, you know, certainly don't want to be anchored on all the academic stuff. But this seems like a place where maybe a, an academic definition is a helpful starting point. So we talk about belonging being both an academic, having both an academic aspect and a social aspect. So, um, you know, when we think about belonging, it's the belief that one is both academically and socially um, connected with others, supported in, in a variety of ways, and then respected. So, and, and there's lots of ways to define belonging for sure. 
but for us, you know, connection, support, and respect are really important. And you can imagine where, you know, those look a little different in a social space than in an academic space. But a lot of times, you know, when I, when we say belonging in our talks or when I'm talking to people, um, they often think of the social part, or are you connected to your peers? And certainly that is an important aspect. The social connection to peers is an important aspect, but it also matters. Do you feel like you belong in this academic space? Do you feel welcomed by faculty, by staff, um, by other students, are you is your voice respected academically? You know, we we hear this in our focus groups when we talk to students, particularly students who are from traditionally marginalized and underserved groups. So, black and brown students in higher ed in general, or women in STEM, they'll say things like, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, they'll say things like, oh, that people were surprised that I was smart because I was a woman in an engineering class. And they didn't expect me to have something, you know, insightful to say about the content. So that belonging piece matters just as much academically as it does socially. And, and then, you know, they're 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 definitely related too. But I, so let, let me pause there, see see if that that helps guide us a little bit. That's and I, I really love how you've kind of concentrated on these three areas of connection, support, and respect. And um, you know, one of the I always go back to my grad theory days and it's this, the Nevitt Sanford, you know, very mm -hmm. basic students need to be um, challenged and supported um, to be able to grow. Right. And I know that basic, but sometimes I feel like we forget about that um, in our, as, as we're busy doing the work of institutions. Yeah. It, you know, and it aligns with like, maybe we, many of us have heard the ideas of a safe space versus a brave space. And, you know, Brene Brown talks about this brave space where we can rumble through things. And it's hard to grow if you're not challenged. At the same time, many people enter spaces, whether they're academic or social, under threat because of their skin color or the clothes they wear, their gender identity, sexual orientation, whatever it is. So we have to be mindful that spaces need to be able to support and challenge students from a variety of backgrounds and intersectional identities. And that's the challenge for the classroom instructor, right? To, you don't always know where everybody is when they show up, but you have to think about that as you design your space, there's challenge and support that are going to be required. Well, you explain that there's kind of some more to this. So um, this academic, so you've provided us kind of the academic definition, right? Um, yeah, and, and yeah. I love that. Um, but sort of any other concepts that we need to understand as we're sort of conceptualizing this idea of belonging? Yeah, I think uh, the other piece that's really important in our work is that um, that oftentimes uh, people have the lay understanding that, um, and actually researchers fall into this trap too. So it's everybody that that motivation, belonging, whatever, like this, these socio-emotional things, they're, they live within the student and they're the student's responsibility. Students just have to be more gritty. You know, they've got to have more of a growth mindset. And then this, you know, the system we've built in higher ed is perfect. They just have, they're gritty and they have a growth mindset. What they're missing out on is the fact that a lot of our motivation and whether we feel like we belong is dependent on the context that we're in, on the situation we're in. And so uh, we like to, to talk about, uh, especially related to belonging, this idea of opportunity structures. So are there 
opportunities afforded to people to feel like they belong. And um, there's a really great uh, uh, article by uh, one of my good colleagues at North Carolina State, DeLeon Gray. So keeping it in the ACC here, um, the Atlantic Coast Conference, for those of you who follow sports. Um, uh, But uh, he wrote this piece with two of his colleagues where they talk about the the kinds of structures that afford students the sense, uh, the ability to belong. And they talk about individual structures, instructional structures, and institutional structures. So uh, individual, institutional, and, um, or sorry, yeah, yeah, individual, sorry, individual, instructional, institutional, and the individual are uh, the interactions that we have directly with students. So you're you're a faculty member, you're meeting with students in your office hours. Um, That's uh, that's an individual interaction or you're, you're in class with them. Um, your, your instructional are the, the, the way you structure the learning environment, how the classroom is structured, not just the words you're saying, but how you're structuring, what your grading policies are, what your late policy is. Do you do small group work, et cetera? And then institutional structures. So what does orientation look like? How are students welcomed into school? What's the financial aid process like? Um, we have, uh, so we have, um, so an example of this at the institutional level is uh, um, we have our, we have five children, our young, my wife and I, and our youngest is a, is a high school senior. So he's doing, he's our caboose and he's doing the, high, the college application process. And the materials you get from schools are so different. Uh, you know, some will, you know, send you every day, there's a new thing. And you're like, these are all superficial. Like it's not helping me. Other schools will send you like a checklist. Here's all the things you need to do and literally a space to check them off. Those, my son loves those because he's got a list of like 20 schools he wants to apply to. We told him that's a lot, you know, maybe don't apply to all 20, but, but he's got his like checklist of stuff he needs to do. Uh, and when a school helps him out, it just makes him feel connected. So this school, which I, I'm really shocked that he applied to this school. He's excited about it because of how they're welcoming him in even before he's been accepted as a student. So share that specific example, but the context matters for belonging. It's not just what does a student do? Students need to reach out. They need to join clubs. Sure. Students need to do things, but, but the context matters, whether it's individual interactions, whether it's the learning context or it's the institutional structures. Chris, this is Ed. So Aaron Basco, who's at the University of Lynchburg, came on and did a podcast with us about enrollment. And this is exactly what he says, that institutions have to form those connections before students even begin the application process if we want to retain them, that they need to understand Mm -hmm. that they have a place and that they feel connected, um, you know, from even before the beginning, um, if you would. And, and it's yeah. also making me think about um, some of, you know, some other conversations that we've gotten to have this year. It's, um, I've just gotten to talk to some fantastic folks around these ideas. Of how do we structure our institutions to be what, what a lot of uh, my community college colleagues are talking about is student ready institutions where, yep. um, and, and to my mind, that kind of, um, structure, idea, concept really ties exactly into what you're discussing. We're not expecting the student to come to us knowing how to operate within 
um, our organization, but we're developing an organization that that is ready for them. Um, to, to yeah, it's absolutely like our is students need to be ready for school and school needs to be ready for students and whatever level that is. So you could talk about going to college. You could talk about showing up to your class the first day. Students need to be ready. Okay. Did they sleep? Did they get something to eat? You know, do they have the textbook? Do they have a notebook and a pencil or a computer to take notes, whatever it is, but you've got to be ready for them. And that's where then that, that opens up a whole nother set of uh, practices that we need to think about. Not just, are we ready to teach them a sequence of content? Are we ready for them as they show up in, in from a variety of skill sets, backgrounds, identities, et cetera? Yeah. So I'm going to kind of jump around because I'm really curious. You know, you're launching this last one from your nest here. And I have a high school junior. So we, too, are getting the Daily Mail from the University of Chicago, um, which <laughs> has made the national news um, with their their mailing. But I'm wondering about, is any of your research dipping into K-12? and belonging, because in my community college experience, I teach, you know, I've taught 17 years, thousands of students at this point. I teach a lot of students who show up never having felt like they belonged in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel like a lot of my work is saying, yes, you know, you can do this. You you are here, we care about you, um, and you have the capacity to be a student um, and belong in and succeed in this environment. So just curious about that, this research kind of dipping down, um, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, I started my academic career when I went back to graduate school, I started in K-12. I started, I was a high school teacher and coach before I went back to grad school. So that was where I started. And then of course uh, it's, when you're in graduate school, you have access to lots of undergrads. So I also was doing higher ed research at the time. And, and so our work does both. And, and we also we also have a project where we're looking at students who are transitioning to post-secondary. They're in high school and they're then they're going somewhere. They might be going to college. They might be going to the workforce. They might be going to the military. So we actually work in K-12. We work in the transition and we work in higher ed. And it gives us a really unique perspective because you know, like you've said, most educators are are located in one spot and they don't have much of an opportunity to dip down and say, okay, what's happening either before they got here? What's What are the messages our students are getting? What's the, what are the experiences and challenges they're having? Or the converse, you know, how many high school educators are taking, have the opportunity, you know, it's not in their job description, go to college, see what's happening to students there. And you know, we miss out because it's really important for us to, for, because we teach whole students to help them transition both ways. Um, so we absolutely, this intervention that, um, that, you know, one of the reasons you reached out to me, I think was this intervention that got published UVA today was, you know, playing it up um, for students who are transitioning to college. We actually created a version of that intervention for students who are transitioning to, from middle school to high school. And we we tested it in the um, Charlottesville area at a couple of high schools, and we found some dramatic results. So um, it was really cool. So uh, do I, can I tell you the story of how we built this intervention? What it is? Okay, it, it's going to take me a couple of minutes. Okay, so we had a group of undergrads at UVA 
who were taking this really cool course on youth and social innovation. And they're like, hey, we want to help high school students belong, especially students who are often marginalized, whether it's for, you know, their race or their skin color or their sexual identity, gender identity, you know, whatever it is, we want to help those students. So they reached out to me and then uh, we started talking about belonging, some of the research, and uh, we got this general idea of what we wanted to do. So, but then they went to the local high school and worked with uh, one of the high school groups, uh, one of the leadership groups, and they worked with those students to create videos of other students talking about like juniors and seniors talking about what it was like for them to transition from middle school to high school, how scared they were, how nervous they were. You know, the first day in the cafeteria, they were sitting by themselves and they're looking around and they were so scared. And then, uh, you know, fast forward several months, several years, they're thriving in their school and or they found their spot, right? They found their people, they found their identity. And the message really is the same. The, the two main messages of both interventions for transitioning students into high school and then students transition to college is two things. One, uh, your challenges are common. Uh, most students, most humans, when we transition to something new, we struggle in some ways. Some of us struggle more than others. We might struggle in different ways because of our identities and our backgrounds, but we all struggle. Like, Nobody knows where all their classes are the first day. <laughs> Everybody's like, am I going to make it on time? That's one. Two, so struggles are common. And then many of them, not all, but many, maybe most are temporary. So you'll eventually figure out how to get to all your classes on time. Eventually, you'll make some connections with some other people. Eventually, you won't, you won't feel like such an alien. But not everything goes away. You know, if you experience... Uh, racism because you're a black or brown student, that may not go away. If you experience bias because you're a woman in STEM, that may not go away. Um, so we don't we don't tell everybody, hey, everything gets better. This is a magical right. place because we know it's not. But those two messages actually help people who experience those kind of ongoing stressors. It helps reduce them just to know, hey, I'm I'm similar to lots of other people here. And because some things get better, it gives you a sense of efficacy and a belonging. So, wow. uh, so got a little sidetrack comparing the two interventions, but I wanted to make sure to say common and temporary. If listeners, if you go away with anything around belonging, helping your students understand that many of their challenges they share with other students, they're not alone. So talking to other students to see how they solve their problems or just hey, get validated uh, is super helpful. And that uh, um, they're temporary, that that you can overcome a lot of these things. Um, what we found in high school is dramatic. Uh, higher GPAs, particularly for students from um, racially minoritized groups, lower discipline referral, referrals, uh, which is huge, and suspensions or um, not tardy so much, but suspensions or... Um, uh, what is the word? Detention. That's the word. Detention, suspensions and detentions. And then also more likely to take more advanced classes uh, when they're juniors and seniors. So just this idea like, you know, belonging, people might say, you know, why do we have to care about belonging? We're educators. You know, I know there's a, a governor from a Southern state who said, we don't care about how students feel about math. They just need to do math. 
Well, um, that perspective is misinformed because when students don't feel good about who they are and in a space, it disrupts all sorts of stuff, including uh, physical health. So we have folks who've tracked um, physical health of students after these interventions, and it, it reduces their visits to the health center on campus, for example. So students are actually physically healthier because they don't they they feel they they're less uncertain. They're more certain about their belonging. Um, right. So so yeah, we, we've we've got these. Uh, ironically, um, the for many folks, it's like oh, we should just focus on the content. Well, we're humans, and if we're distracted by worries about fitting in, it it reduces our cognitive bandwidth and our and our physical ability to to be there and to be successful and to finish up the credential or the degree and, um, and, and all those those goals, right? The institutions and, and we have for our students. Um, wow, that is so, that's so exciting. And the idea that in high school you're reducing, I mean, I'm thinking about um, the school my children are at, I have two high schoolers and um, the d- discipline alone, like that's, that's amazing to see that you've seen a reduction in discipline actions um, at the school, but then also that students are then feeling more comfortable to challenge themselves academically um, as they get along in their program. We've had somebody um, question about, what about adult students, right? When we think about um, so so many of um, our, you know, we're really seeing, I think, national trends, and, and Chris, thanks for all the links you're putting into um, our chat but we're seeing national trends of shifting enrollment. Um, and, you know, more and more, we're going to have adult learners at our institutions. Um, so it, is this, have you kind of seen this help both our traditional age students as well as our adult learners, these interventions? And maybe we should stop, pause for a second, because I know what the intervention is at the college level, but perhaps we should back up for a second and explain that too, um, to our listening audience. Sorry. Sure, sure. Yeah, I explained the high school intervention where the students watched videos of other students and then had a chance to write their own reflection uh, about like, if, so if you're, you're incoming, you're, you're a ninth grader, you just started school. Um, in this case, it was during orientation during August. And they would write, okay, how do I think I'm going to make the transition? Um, what challenges might I face and how might I reach out to other people? So you have a chance to reflect. The, high, the college intervention is similar, but instead of watching videos, you're reading quotations from other students. And these are students that we've interviewed. And then we've, you know, we've, we've uh, crafted about six or eight different stories of different students talking about these were the challenges I had when I transitioned and then, you know, how I overcame them, essentially. Um, and just sending the message around, hey, these challenges are common. And they're mostly temporary. Uh, and then after they read the quotations, they'd write their own their own, own essay. So most of these um, brief psychological interventions like the belonging intervention or your listeners maybe have heard of growth mindset, the growth mindset intervention, have a similar kind of format where there's some reading and reflecting activities that students do to try to kind of process the central messages around belonging or growth mindset. And growth mindset is the belief that you can improve your intelligence through effort and, and learning from failure and, and trying hard things. Uh, but it, that's that's the general format of the intervention. And I forgot the first part of the question. 
So um, the question was adult learners. Have you all ah. done research? Yeah, with adult students and found that because I, I feel like a lot of the adults I've taught over the years um, really kind of feel like they're maybe frauds, right? They're imposters mm -hmm. in the classroom. They've yeah. been out of the classroom for a while. Uh, maybe they didn't really feel like they were good students in high school. And of course, we know that a lot of times they're the best students in your class. So, Right. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting, some, we've done some work and, um, you know, like much of the research in psychology in general, it, it it's come from a space that's mostly focused on traditional age students. So, um, so a lot of the original research didn't have adult learners, but we've been fortunate to work. Uh, we do a lot of work in community college and there's a lot more adult learners in community college than in traditional four-year schools. So um, you're right. One of the things we find with adult learners that the, the worries are a little different. And so like the worries are, it's been a long time since I've done school. Can I get back in this thing? That's one. Uh, actually, that's usually the second one. The first one is, how am I going to make this work? I have life and now I'm going back to school. It, um, what their advantage is, they usually have more of a purpose. They're like, oh, I'm going back to school after all this time, whether it's two years or 20, for some reason. Whereas, you know, a lot of high school students are like, all right, it's the next thing. Uh, and they're not always sure of that purpose of like, why would I, I just, I'm just told I need to get a, a bachelor's or associates or whatever, but I'm not really sure why. Um, so, so the, so yeah, so they're worried if they can juggle everything and then, Hey, I'm an imposter. Maybe I was an okay student in high school and now I'm in college. I'm so I wasn't, I don't really have that great of a academic identity anyway. And now it's been so long. So yeah, they're worried about whether they're going to do it. And we find that those students often really respond to messages around growth. Um, and like, you know, you don't have to know it all now. You just have to know how to figure out. It. And a lot of times like, oh yeah, I figured out how to get my kids to daycare. I figured out, you know, how to work and be a full and be a mom. Like they figured a lot of stuff out. They just have to like realize, oh, I can apply that uh, problem solving skill to learning how to do school too. Um, but then it's like, I don't know technology. <laughs> uh, these, you know, uh, you know, I, when I was in high school, we didn't have smartphones and now you have to have a smartphone to get connected to everything. And so it's, it, for them, there's a lot of tactical like support that's required um, to, you know, how do I ac access the course management system? Um, that creates doubts about whether they belong. So they also, uh, um, when we talk to them in focus groups, really, you know, it's this, you hear belonging concerns and uncertainty around belonging. The interventions that we've done with belonging, we haven't um, had large enough samples of adult learners to really be able to to, to tease out, is it working better for them or not? So that's an area that's a little unexplored. I would personally say if I someone asked me, hey, Chris, will you design an intervention for adult learners? I would be like, yes, it needs to be a little different than the one that we have for um, regular you know, students transitioning straight from high school because the belonging concerns are a little different. So that's where we would probably want to customize that, the, the quotations they're reading or the videos they're watching. We want to customize those for the concerns that adult learners have that can be a little different. So all of this research has come, if I understand correctly, from this 
it's called PERTS, right? Am I using this term correctly? That that's kind of the research group area, not using correct terminology here, Chris. No, no, no th there certainly is PERTS. And they, they are, I would say PERTS is more on the dissemination end of everything. Okay. So they're like helping get this intervention out to colleges. Like if you go on their website, you can sign up and get access to the belonging, uh, what I call the belonging uncertainty intervention, um, because it's helping reduce, reduce concerns about belonging. Um, in terms of developing and testing it, they were involved a little bit, but that was really more the college transitions collaborative, which is a okay. different group. Also from Stanford, PERTS came from Stanford and so did the College Transitions Collaborative. Uh, and that was the group that I worked with um, that then I was a part of developing um, the, the intervention for this large scale test that got published recently. Um, and so you mentioned, is it still available for, it's, at some point in time I was receiving emails from PERTS and I realized, I don't know, maybe my spam filter got it, um, but I'm not getting those anymore. <laughs> Um, it, or is it still something that institutions can participate in? Because um, yeah, I'm curious yep. about adding, you know, I, I know there's um, probably some folks on the listening in who are like, hmm, I would like to get my adult learners, um, you know, involved with this too. Increase those. Yeah, I just dropped the link into the chat where people can go. Uh, I think they've changed their model a little bit. They used to like help you collect data on your students and so that you could evaluate the intervention. I think they've stopped doing that, but they still offer the intervention itself. Um, and, and it's typically you access it through Qualtrics, I think, but it's, okay. it's on, it's online that students can do. Um, oh, well maybe it's because I'm dropping the links in the wrong way. Um, I am apologies, everyone. Let me try this again. You do have to select the everyone from the drop down menu. Yes. I can for you, Chris, if you want. So you don't have to go back. That'd be that'd be great. That'd be great. I didn't realize I was not sharing with everyone. Sorry. No worries, no worries. So um so are are institutions integrating these um interventions like into class? Is it in orientation? Where are students accessing these messages about belonging? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, you know, I'm not closely connected to PERT, so they would they would be able to tell you, oh yeah, we have, you know, this percent of our institutions are doing it this way or that way. But what I can tell you that I know anecdotally is yes to both. So I know schools are doing it in orientation and that's how it was tested originally as well was in orientation and whether that was orientation that happened in May or August, like in that somewhere in that window. Um, uh, sometimes students access the intervention as a part of their online checklist. You go in, you do your health forms, you sign up for your parking pass, you do the PERTS belonging <laughs> intervention. Uh, so that's that's probably the majority way. But again, I don't have the data to tell you, hey, X percent institutions are doing this way. I also know I have a colleague at Colorado College. His name's Steve Getty. Give him a huge shout out. He's actually a geoscientist who uh, runs their quantitative reasoning center. Steve also is a motivation guru. And so um, Steve and I have been working together since like 2009. He's really interested in how we embed um, motivational supports into classroom instruction. And so mm -hmm. he led the implementation of 
um, the belonging intervention at his school at Colorado College. And I believe they did it in their first year seminar type courses or first year experience type courses, which I think is also another common way to do that because it can be very topic topically relevant depending on how those courses are taught. Well, and I'm curious about, I, I know I didn't throw this question in here, but I love that you and Steve are motivation gurus um, because this <laughs> As um, I was, we were um, at a, I was at a conference and we were absolutely talking that we feel like if we could crack the motivation nut for students, um, you know, that's probably like Nobel prize winning, um, you know, kind of efforts because it's so challenging to figure out um, this piece around how do we help students understand motivation? Um, You know, and I teach first year seminar courses and it's one credit, right? I get like 10 minutes to explain extrinsic and yeah. intrinsic motivation and then we move right, right on. To right. Um, and I don't know that it really does anything to um, support students um, other than the fact they can tell you those terms when they leave the class. But any, so so kind of this last question I have, and um, we'd love to hear if folks have questions for Chris. We do have them for a few more minutes, but advice to our institutions that are trying to support students um, that are trying to create motivational um, interventions so students can better understand motivation. Um, So curious around that because it's so connected, right? If we, students need to feel like they belong and they need to understand the motivation um, for moving forward um, in their academic programs or we can't retain them. I mean, that's just, often the reality. Yeah, right. And and I would say like, so there's a lot of answers to your question, but I'll, I'll give a couple. One is what I like to remind folks that motivation is a human challenge. It's not just unique to students. Think about your role as a faculty member or a staff member, or adjunct instructor, whatever it is. Uh, there are, you have your own set of motivational challenges. Life can overwhelm us like it did in the pandemic. And that really disrupts people's desire to go to work. Um, you know, you have an illness, uh, you have to take care of children, you know, whatever it is, life happens that disrupts your motivation that happens to students too. They have life outside of school. Um, many of them are working, you know, quite a bit. Um, so just like motivation is a human challenge. One, two, if you if you introspect on kind of your motivation challenges and how you approach those and what like what could an administrator do to like help improve your own motivation like doing that sort of like what I would call empathize and learn for yourself and think through that then you can apply that lens to your students same thing like what about your students in the environment you have them in where are their challenges so listen to them get their voices that'll help you figure out, oh, what are the things I can do? What's in my control and not? Because you probably aren't in charge of childcare at your university. And if students are struggling with access to childcare, that might may or may not be something you can do, but you can use that knowledge to say, okay, my students are challenged to, um, to like get to my office hours because they're, they're um, going to pick up their kids from childcare. What could I do differently? to help them access supports that's not physically being in my office uh, for office hours because that's not possible for them. So this, so the first thing is empathize and learn with yourself. The second thing is empathize and learn with your students. 
Um, and then, and then uh, the third is talk to your peers. You know, what are the challenges that you, that they're facing? What's common. So let's use the common and temporary thing for faculty as well. And instructors, what's common among the challenges uh, across you know, your faculty peers, your instructional peers, and what approaches are other people using? What seems to be working? What doesn't seem to be working? Draw strength and support from your colleagues or go to conferences, go to places like this, um, but look at like what else is being being out there um, and that you can use in your space. The last is, the last thing I'll say is I often have people uh, draw three circles Circle of control, circle of influence, and circle of concern. And control are things you can that you have absolute control over. Like I decided to wear this shirt for this session. I could have chosen a different shirt. That was like I had plenty of shirts in the closet. I could choose one. That's under my control. Influence, you know, in, in a classroom, you get to control how much content, or maybe not all the content, but you get to control exactly you know, what your lecture looks like that day, you're going to break up into small groups, or are you going to spend more time lecturing? Um, influences, hey, I might try to convince others of things, but I don't totally control it. Anything related to parenting, that's all influence. <laughs> we think, you think you're going to be in control as a parent, but when we have kids, you realize you are barely in control of anything. Um, the same for your students, like you want them to have all this knowledge at the end of your 15 weeks, or if it's a one credit uh, college success class, you know, five weeks or whatever you have with them. Um, but really, you only can influence how much they learn and, and how much they retain. And then finally is concern. Like you hope your students get sleep. You hope they're fed well, but you that's that's up to them to really figure out. Now, maybe you can provide some supports for that, bringing it to the influence where you provide food for your students. But um, most of us don't have the resources to do that right at hand. So it's just an influence. Um, so think about the things of all the things that you hear other people are doing. What's in your control? Because someone else might have more control over their environment than you. You, they, you might not be able to ship textbooks because you're teaching an entry-level course. There's 20 other faculty teaching that entry-level course and you all have to use the same textbook. But you probably have some choices around pedagogy. You probably have some choices of what first the first day looks like, how you welcome students. Do you memorize all their names? Do you greet them at the door? So there are different things you can do in your circle of control. So often when we go learn from other people, we can be like, oh, I want to do everything. Uh, but then we don't have that control or the time. So empathize with yourself, empathize with your students, learn from your colleagues and um, focus on what's what you can control. Um, that, that's where I, those, that's the four places I'd start. I think those are great advice. And, you know, one of the things you said was listening to our students. And I think that's so important. Um, I think sometimes we are guilty of uh, sitting at conference room tables, right. And making decisions about programs or uh, interventions without actually having ask our students, what is the experience? Like where are the hurdles they're finding? How, what, where do they need our support? Um, so I always want to elevate our student voices as much as possible. Well, Chris, I just want to say thank you so much. We did get a comment in the chat that um, Melanie said at their institution, um, they're using Skip Downing's on course book, which is something a lot of us use, I think, in teaching first year experience classes. I've 
um, taught with that one and that um, it's got uh, some good information around understanding motivation. And he uses a formulation formula, motivation equals values times expectations. Um, and then I guess there's kind of a rubric you can um, use with students to kind of evaluate that. So thanks for sharing that with us, Maura. We appreciate it. And Chris, thanks for all the resources that you've put in the chat um, for us. There's a lot of fantastic um, uh, content there. Um, and uh, you've got a great um, chat in there from Kim Shelton. So, um, oh, and Chris is sharing that, yes, they too use the same um, formula. So it's great. I, and I seem quite young for my music preferences as well. I'm, I'm definitely into my... I've been through five decades already of my life. So uh, um, I think they're probably more on brand than you realize. Uh, but we, so so someone commented about the a motivation formula um, values by expectations. We, I, I linked in an older article. We actually have added another letter to that is, is C cost and, and that perceived cost are like all the barriers that you see to engaging. Like I said, you know, you have to take care of a sick kid or you're working a job. Those things pull away from our motivation and it's easy to discount those and others because we don't see them. I don't, you know, we see Meg that you are in your car and you, you shared early that, Hey, the traffic was bad. Like, but, but we just see you in your car. We don't exactly know why you're in your car. I could make the attribution if I was your instructor. Oh, Meg's just making bad life choices. She's not time, her time management's bad, you know, whatever. And really you were like, Hey, this is the normal route I take. And the traffic was bad. So I am, I'm busting my butt to get here. The other choice was to keep driving in this class. So we don't know those things, but they, they really pull on us. So, um, but yeah, that, that's a great uh, formula. We do workshops around the expectancy value cost model as we talk about it. Awesome. I'm definitely going to need to do some more research um, around that and making sure I incorporate it uh, with my students. And I'm laughing as you're talking about me sitting in my mobile office. I, I did have a student who kept logging into our online class from his um, police vehicle which was really disconcerting. And we finally got him in a better, in an asynchronous course, um, because that was rather alarming for all of us. Um, but bless his heart, he was trying to make it all work with all the things that he had going on. So, um, and Chris right? posted another article, right? I mean, right? what an example of like being resourceful, being gritty and like, uh, you know, I work with, uh, um, can I say this last story or should I shut up? Oh, no, no, go. You so, so I have the great fortune of working with oh, systems of higher education, the folks at the state level who like oversee the university system of Georgia or the state of Louisiana, the state of California. And, uh, you know, sometimes those folks get a bad name, but they are, they're all like, they're educators like us. So the, the, the gentleman that's who I'm going to talk about now, he was the, the chief academic officer in Tennessee and then in Georgia now in Louisiana and he talks about, so he, but he's a former math instructor, started at the uh, University of Mississippi. Um, he talks about the grit tax that uh, students have. Like if you're working a bunch of jobs or you say you're working 30 hours a week and you're a full-time student, there's a tax to like juggle all of that to make your work schedule match your class schedule. And then the transportation in between and Lord forbid, if you have a family or anything else. And right. so we kind of often can underestimate what that takes from some of our students. Now, uh, you know, not every student has those stressors. Some students like at UVA, there's a social pressure to join 
clubs and our clubs at UVA are really high stress. Like they might require 10 to 20 hours a week and students are expected to like do multiple of these. And it can, you might say as an instructor, all oh, these students are just joining all these clubs. They should prioritize academics. But the culture is such at UVA that everyone's telling them, hey, if you want the best job after you get out of undergrad, you need to do all these clubs like you did in high school. So that's also a tax for those students. So we all have different taxes. Uh, I like the idea of a grit tax because like you may have paid it all already and now you're sitting in the classroom and you're having a hard time staying awake. It's not because they don't care uh, necessarily. It could be because they, they're paying their dues other places and they're, they're just juggling a lot. Well, Chris, that is a fantastic story, I think, to, to wrap up with. Thank you so much for your time today. I have um, taken lots of notes um, and, and just learned so much from you. I really, really appreciate you sharing your knowledge um, with us and with our listeners. So um, we're um, going to wrap up 2023. Um, December 1st is our last podcast um, this year. And we're going to look back. Um, and, and Chris, you're, you're kind of going to be of it in a way. Um, we're going to talk about sort of terms that have defined the words that have defined 2023 in higher education. Um, I've got a panel of folks who are going to join us from across higher ed. And um, belonging was the first term um, that people said they wanted to um, hop on. So I feel like uh, that's a nice uh, kind of continuation of our conversation today. So Chris, thanks so much for being willing to um, come on our podcast. We appreciate all you've shared with us. Well, hey, it was great to be here. And you know, for listeners, uh, you can easily find me on the web. My email is available if you want to follow up. Uh, always happy to continue the conversation. Thanks. Happy Friday, everybody. Hope there is time for rest and renewal in your weekend and take care. Friday Five Live is brought to you by Innovative Educators. Innovative Educators offers six online services for your onboarding support and training needs. Visit us at innovativeeducators.org to see how we can support your student success initiatives.